You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we've not met before, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I just want to welcome you if you're new. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, we're really thrilled that you would be with us. And you, you're here on a Sunday where we're wrapping up a study that's gone for months and months and months through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the end of the story today is what we're going to be talking about. And uh, so this is always a challenge for me to wrap something up like this, which I've just been invo- just immersed in for months. And many of you have just been studying along and commenting on uh, how this book has impacted your lives. And I I used an unhelpful analogy last week. I think I said, yeah, the last, when we close a book, for me, it's always just like a breakup. Well, that's not really true because tomorrow morning I can go back and read this and God will still be there for me like he was for the whole time. So a breakup's not really a good analogy. A better analogy might be like if you are really captivated by some particular Netflix show and it's like the fifth season and it's the end of the fifth season. This is the final episode. It's never going to be renewed. It's never coming back. And then like, then there's that sense of, oh, it's exciting, but then there's that little existential emptiness inside of you. Uh, Well, this is the Word of God, so this is significantly more than a Netflix show, but that doesn't really work either because, like, if you go back to that show and watch it from the beginning, it's not fresh anymore. The Word of God is always fresh, so I can go back to Ecclesiastes tomorrow and gain some powerful life-changing insight I didn't have So I don't know what the analogy is, but I'm really sorry to finish the book. I'll just say that. And here's what's going to happen at the end. We're going to see that really Ecclesiastes ends the book the same way he began in one way. Before we read today's text, I want to read verse 8 of chapter 12. So we're going to do chapter 12, 9 through 14. That's the end of the book. But I'm going to read the verse before because in verse 8 he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And that's how he began the book. In chapter 1, verse 2, he starts the whole thing off saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so this is sort of a literary technique to begin and close a book. And what it really says is uh, that this is the theme that he's wanted to capture throughout the book, is that if you begin and end the same way, uh, it's highlighting the theme. And we've seen every week that the word vanity really means here, it's a, uh, it literally is a vapor. So it's, it's a word that's being used as a, metaphor, as a metaphor. He's saying that life is, in fact, a puff of smoke. It is brief. It is elusive. You cannot manage it or control it. You cannot grip it. It is here for a moment, and then it is gone. And so throughout the book, Ecclesiastes has taught that because of that, because life is ungraspable and uncontrollable, that if we chase the stuff of life to find meaning and joy, if we're chasing and trying to accumulate money and possessions, if we're chasing position um, and, and honor, if we are chasing sex, if we're chasing achievement in whatever it is we are doing and trying to find our meaning in that, that we will find that life will just slip through our hands. 
with nothing to grasp. But if we look to God, rather, and see everything he provides for us as a gift on a daily basis, rather than making idols of the creation, receiving the things of his creation as a gift, then we see that even the simple things of life are causes for tremendous joy, Ecclesiastes says. Stuff like a meal, um, stuff like drink, stuff like uh, relationships and friends and marriage and family and our jobs and all of these kinds of things, they all become places of joy when we don't grasp them as something to find our meaning in, but see that they're just passing and we find our meaning in God and thank him for the gifts. And now, after all of that, he's going to give us the end of the story. So he's going to close and tell us this is what it was all about. So let's listen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find wise words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, in this very kind of closing part, we see really three kind of sections here by their two verses at a time. They're each a paragraph in, in my Bible, the way it's outlined. So verses 9 and 10 speak of, here's what he did. Here's his method. It's sort of the method of Ecclesiastes. Verses 11 and 12 talk about, here's the effect. Here's how Ecclesiastes, the book, works. And verses 12 and 13 are the point of Ecclesiastes. So we have uh, the method of Ecclesiastes, the effect of Ecclesiastes on us, and the point. Here's his method. This is sort of the style or the manner of his book. He's just sort of reviewing in verse 9, besides being wise, he's referring to himself here in third person. The preacher also taught people with knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So he says, here's what I've done. Uh, I, I'm a, he's wise, the wisest person of his day, and I've sought to serve people. I've sought to help people with knowledge. And sort of the vehicle for that is I've crafted, carefully crafted, Proverbs, which are just sort of short, pithy sayings, and I've, I've done that to uh, arranging them with great care. And we've seen those little Proverbs throughout the book. He also writes a significant portion of the book of Proverbs. It's interesting. First Kings 4 says that Solomon, the author here, wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs. So he was prolific we read many of them here in the book, and he says, this is what I've done to pass on my wisdom, to teach people with knowledge. And he says also that I've carefully sought to sort of craft these, to find, verse 10, find words of delight. At points of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's felt almost despairing. 
It's felt depressing. And many could read the book and say, well, this is really a hopeless, depressing book, but that would be to miss the whole purpose. He's saying, I've crafted words of delight. It means words of pleasure. I've sought to give you a book that when you read this, you will find delight for your soul, that there will be a joy. We've noted the points of joy throughout the book. It's really a book about joy written for our pleasure in God. That's the whole thing of the book. And he says, not only for your pleasure, but these are words of truth. They're not only words of delight, but they're words of truth because they are God's words. And so God gives us the truth. He gives us truth for living. He gives us a true perspective, regardless of the protest of the culture we're in, uh, and really every culture, regardless of the protest of culture, which are opposed to the authority of God and the word of God. He's saying, look, these words are true and beautiful for you. So we're wise to immerse ourselves in the scripture, and in particular, this book, which is pleasurable and joyful and is written to tell us the truth. The next thing he tells us is, here's the effect. So you've been affected if you've been around for the study, if you've read the book, you've been affected by it, but he's going to tell us, here's the point of these wise sayings. He says that in verse 11 that these words of the wise are like goads. These words have been goads. It's not a word we use a lot. Um, it would have been a well-known term in, in his, an agrarian society. A goad is a long stick. And at the end of the stick is a sharp point. And uh, a farmer would use it to, so if he's plowing, for instance, and the ox that he's plowing with begins to veer one direction or another, you take the sharp stick and you poke the ox to get it back in line. And if he's weaving that way, you poke him on that side and sort of line him up there a little bit. So the goad was something that redirected an ox, or shepherds used them as well. A, a shepherd would protect if an errant sheep was moving over into some area of danger. You know, he'd just come up and give them a little poke in the ribs and sort of get them over in the right direction. And so what he's saying is, when you read this book, this book was intended to poke you. The author's saying, I hope you felt some sharp pokes along the way. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God pokes us and warns us, hey, you're drifting into danger. You're supposed to be plowing a straight line here, but you're getting off course. The, the Word of God comes to us as sheep, and it prods us. It, it keeps us out of danger. As sheep, this book, it, it poked us and, and taught us, hey, don't chase the emptiness of life. Don't be trying to grab smoke and make your life built upon something that is fleeting, the fleeting accomplishments that you're trying to achieve. Don't make that your identity. Don't put your hope in the fleeting pleasures of life or in scripting your own story. Ecclesiastes has jabbed us to redirect us, to redirect us to find joy in God. It's corrected us to say, look, you find real meaning and in real life in God and trusting him. It's sort of prodded us into believing that you can find joy in the most basic of daily tasks when you walk with God. If you know God, you can find pleasure in something as simple as your daily 
activities, your marriage, your school, your job, your friends, your food, and your drink. And like the ox, the goad sort of pokes us when we are, we saw a few weeks ago, when we are sitting on our sack of seeds, when we should be out with the seeds, planting them and trusting God to harvest something out of the seeds he's been giving us to plant. So it, 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 it prods us to get busy when we should be planting. There are times throughout the book, and in this ending, this ending is this case for sure, where there's a sharp word that reminds us that life is short and there's a coming judgment. That's a poke. We may not want to hear that, but that's the truth. And so he, Ecclesiastes, that, well, actually, God is loving us through the book of Ecclesiastes. God is loving us through the word he gave to the preacher here, uh, Ecclesiastes. He, he's, he's prodding us to wake up. Sometimes we're a little drowsy. And, and he's prodding us, poking us right in the ribs and saying, wake up, your life is short and judgment is coming. And he goads us because he loves us. The goad hurts at times, but it is such a gift to a sheep that is wandering off into danger. The goad protects us from danger. It corrects our conscience when we're headed the wrong way. It, it prods us into action. When you encounter God's word, you should feel a poke in your ribs at times. It's not all you should feel. You should feel all kinds of things, comfort and joy and all kinds of things, peace, hope. But I just want to say that if you come to church on a weekly basis and you read your Bible and you don't feel poked at times, there's a problem. If you read the Bible and find everything God says totally agrees with you and never rubs you the wrong way, then you have created a God in your own image. There is a distinct difference between you and God, and he speaks absolute truth, and you don't live absolute truth. You don't believe absolute truth, uh, truth be told, at least not functionally, the way we live. And so if you don't encounter the Bible and see, man, God is toppling my idols, God is the biblical term would be convicting me. That's a gift that it feels, it can feel like a poke, but it's redemptive. It's the love of God for us. He uses another image as well. Look at what he says, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. So this, the wisdom literature, all the Bible, but the wisdom literature, these, these collected savings, sayings rather, uh, they're like nails firmly fixed. Now, what's so interesting here is that the word that he that is translated nails is a word that was commonly, commonly used for big nails, tent pegs in particular. And so what he's saying is that the word of God is, works like a big tent peg that would hold down a tent. It, it nails down truth in your life so that you have stability. Ecclesiastes works like a big tent peg to sort of hold down, stabilize the four corners of your life, we could say. We just sang about winds coming and, and uh, rains blowing, but us being firmly fixed on the rock. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught that. That comes from the scripture that, that, that verse did there. Uh, but, but here he's saying that very, a very similar thing, that the word of God 
nails down parts of our lives so that we have stability. I mean, just think about one example. A prominent theme that we've gone through for the recent months in Ecclesiastes, a prominent theme is the sovereignty of God. That God rules over all. It was the opening verse to our service today. That God does what he pleases, that God's powerful, that he rules over all. And Ecclesiastes made a, a big point of that, that we have different seasons in our lives, a time to weep, a time to laugh, uh, you know, all these, a time to build up, a time to tear down, all these various seasons. But that God is the ruler of all the seasons and that God makes everything beautiful in his time. If you get that doctrine, which is throughout the scripture, but highlighted in Ecclesiastes, if you get that in your soul, it will nail down your life when you, so that you have stability when troubles come. If you don't believe that, when the winds blow, you have no stability. It's as if you're, you're in a tent that's just sort of propped up somehow, but there's nothing in the ground holding it. And when the winds come, you're blown away. You have nowhere to go. And so the word of God nails truth down so that we have stability in our lives. So consider the contrast. Vanity of vanities, you know, all of life is vanity. Life is a, is a puff of smoke. Consider the contrast. Life is a puff of smoke, but God's word nails down the truth in your life so that you are stable. So in the midst of a, a life that you can't explain everything, I can't explain everything, life doesn't make sense so much of the time, but the truth of God stabilizes us so that we have a place to go. We have someone to go to. We're rooted in it. That, that's why we teach the Bible here on Sunday mornings. That's why we walk through passages or walk through books rather than getting three tips on dealing with stress from the pastor. The reason we're not giving some kind of self-help nonsense around here is because the word of God stabilizes us in the storm and my opinions do nothing for you. It is the word of God that holds us. And Ecclesiastes is saying this whole book, you've been reading and at times, what's he up to? I've been poking you. And I've been giving you something to stabilize you so that you can live the life God wanted you to live. We need this truth in particular of the sovereignty of God in our lives. For a lot of years, my wife and I and our kids lived in California. So we're from Texas, moved to California. We lived out there almost 20 years, and now we've come back and been here almost 20 years. But one of the things in California that was common, I, I guess it still is, I don't know, but we were there when there were a number, we went through a number of big earthquakes. And so uh, a, you'd hear regularly about an earthquake preparedness kit. Everybody, you're supposed to have food and water and there's a whole list of things, you know, ready to go. Flashlights and flashlight batteries and radio and whatever. You're supposed to have all this kind of stuff in case power's out for an extended amount of time. And uh, one thing I learned there is that, you know, when an earthquake comes, if you, if you lose power, that's not the time to set up your earthquake preparedness kit. <laughs> it's too late at that point. Because your local store, is, there's crumbling glass is the front door of your local store, some of the stores at that time. We, didn't live, we never experienced anything utterly devastating, but enough to scare me to death. We had a few of those events. And, and that's sort of the same with the Word of God being nailing down your life. The time to get nailed down is when life is fine. That's the time. So that when the difficulty comes, you're not scrambling in confusion. Now, if you are scrambling in confusion, God is gracious and the word of God is always true. 
But if you are young in particular, now is the time to settle these issues in your soul. That God is good, God is gracious, God rules, and no matter what comes, I'm, I'm standing on him. His word is holding me. Now's the time. So when you get older and go through any number of difficulties in life, man, you are, your life is nailed down by the word of God. And you'll have stability. Not in the middle of it. Don't wait till you get older and think, you know, when I get older, then I'll get serious about God. A, that may not be true. That's presumption. You may not be serious about God when you get older. And B, uh, why wait? Enjoy God now. And C, now's the time to prepare so that you are stable in him. So the preacher says, here's the effect of the book, guys. Here's what I was doing the whole time. It's goads and nails. It's correction and stability. That's what I've been giving you. And here's the beauty of it. It all comes from Jesus. Look what he says. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed or the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, shepherd is capitalized there because the shepherd refers to a person. Uh, the, the Old Testament, the Psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd. And the New Testament reveals that Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. John 7, Jesus says, uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God does something much greater than just poke us to get on the right path. Jesus says, I'm not the shepherd that just pokes you when you're in danger. I'm the shepherd that gave my life for you. I'm the one who died so that you could have life. That's beautiful. It's given to us by a shepherd. So, the poking and the stabilizing, the goads and the nails are given to us by a shepherd. That means the word of God, God takes his word and he shepherds our lives with it. What does a shepherd do? He guards the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He leads and guides the sheep. He protects the sheep. And God does that through his word. And as Jesus shepherds us with his word, it is more than sufficient more than it's all we need. And that's why he says at the end of the verse, look, uh, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. If you're a middle schooler or a high schooler, that's not a, ver that's not a verse to share with your parents when they say, have you done your homework, okay? <laughs> it's not, no, mom, the word of God says uh, much study is weariness to the flesh. Your mom's going to say, well, go weary yourself and get your, <laughs> get your homework done. <laughs> What he's saying is, if God, if, if Jesus shepherds us by his word, you don't have to chase after all these other answers and solutions. It's wearying. You just, I made a self-help comment earlier. You just, you just, you know, go to Amazon and look up self-help books. There will be tens of thousands. You will weary yourself looking for experts on this and that and the other when Jesus is the source of all truth. Take his word and build your life on it, and you won't be wearied by just the chasing like Ecclesiastes did, chasing and trying to find life in a thousand different false sources when you can find life in Jesus. Don't weary yourself as Ecclesiastes did. He's an example. He tried it all and found it all left him empty. So, that's his, uh, so, so that is sort of the effect of the book. That's how it affects us. Last, he gives us the point of Ecclesiastes, verse 13, the end of the matter. I love how he concludes. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Okay, we're wrapping it up here, he says. Fear God and keep his 
commandments, for this is the whole duty of God. If you were here when we looked at Ecclesiastes' life early in the book, we saw that he did everything. He experienced it all. He had more experiences than anyone in this room. He was wiser than anyone in this room. And here's his conclusion. On my journey and investigation of life, here's what I found. This is what it all comes down to. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Now, it's interesting. The word duty there, the whole duty of man, uh, it's added in. There's no Hebrew word for duty there. It's added in so we'll understand the point. It literally reads the, uh, the, that uh, without, without duty, it literally reads, for this is the whole of man. So this is the whole of humanity, is to fear God and to follow him, obey his commandments. This is the whole deal. This is the point of your existence. And why is this so important? Well, he tells us in verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the reason you want to fear God and keep his commandments, because God will sort out everything in the end. Can we just acknowledge that, man, our, our culture wants to hear nothing of these verses. We don't want to hear that there's a God and that he will judge me according to his truth. I don't get to have my truth before God. I will be judged by his truth. We, we don't want to hear about an afterlife, unless it's everybody goes to heaven. But we don't want to hear about judgment. We don't want to hear about an afterlife. We want to pretend there is no God, and we want to pretend there is no eternity. I read an article uh, in the last couple of weeks. It was an interview with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I don't mean to criticize him, and I hope I can share this without, I hope I can share this without being self-righteous. I, I don't want to be self-righteous, but he's like 75 years old and still looking pretty good. I'll, we got to acknowledge that. The guy, he's 75, and in the article, he just definitive in the interview, he just definitively says there is no afterlife. afterlife. That you, this is all you got. You die and this is all it is. And I thought, you know what? It makes a lot of sense that, that if this is all there is, you'd want to be Mr. Universe. If this is all we got, you'd, many people would make their body their God, right? That, that this is all we got. So I might as well have the most amazing biceps you've ever seen because this is all that you've got. But I thought, how sad that he, coming to the end of his life at 75, would just definitively say, there is nothing after this. That's what we want to pretend, that we don't face God. But we do face God. British theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, and, and noted atheist, once said, heaven is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. Heaven is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. To this, John Lennox responded. John Lennox is a Christian professor at Oxford. So Hawking, heaven is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. John Lennox said, atheism is a fairy story for those who are afraid of the light. What's he saying? We don't want to be told we're going to face God. So I'm going to create a fairy story which says there is no God, there is no judgment, this is all there is, and I want to live in imaginary land because my conscience can't bear the weight of the reality that I'm going to stand before God and be judged by his law. 
None of us, it's just that we, that we resist that. Uh, everything in us resists that. But this is where he ends his book. He say, man, I've gone on for 12 chapters goading and, and giving you tent pegs. And here's the whole deal. You're going to be judged. That's where he closes the book. And if we think about it for the moment, we all know that's right. And ultimately, we all want that. I mean, throughout the book, he is, he is uh, Ecclesiastes has pointed out injustices. He's talked a lot about injustice. There's been sections where he talked about people who are oppressed and how grief as it is when people are oppressed by a government or uh, by someone who has means and authority and power of some sort. He's, he's pointed that out. And we, we all know that if that's not dealt with, if there aren't some if there aren't some universal sort of tent pegs holding down our existence, if there's not some justice, then the whole thing just blows away in chaos. It just lacks meaning. We all know that, that, that it's a good thing ultimately to have a judgment and accounting when people are taken advantage of, maybe their whole lives. Is that ever dealt with? We, we want it to be dealt with. When people are trafficked as sex slaves today, we, we grieve over that. But is that just, oh well, or is that going to be dealt with in some way? When women and children are abused, is that just, well, that's the way of the world? Or is there going to, even if there's no earthly justice, even if someone gets by with it, do they really get by with it? Because if so, man, this is chaos. This is chaos. When people have committed genocide, and at times in our history, in the last century, killed millions of people, does that just, well, too bad you lived there in that time, or will that be dealt with? And the scripture says, oh, that will be dealt with. There will be justice, maybe not in this life, and we are to, we are to do what we can to bring justice in this life, but that doesn't always happen. It's a fallen world. But there will be eternal justice. See, if there's no God and there's no judgment, then nothing matters. But if there is a God and there is a judgment, then everything matters. And that's the point of Ecclesiastes. Everything matters because the sovereign Lord of the universe will account for all things and will right all wrongs. And that's why the Bible portrays for the people of God, judgment is actually a good thing. It is a good day. It's a fearful thing if you don't know Christ. But if you do, it's viewed as a good thing. Why? Because God is going to right all wrongs on that day. Look what Psalm 98 says. It's actually like a celebration of judgment for the believer. Psalm 98, 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. And let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The powerful metaphors, the rivers clapping, all the world, those who dwell in it are roaring. Let the seas roar. There's this calling, there's a celebration that God will bring equity. Beautiful that God will bring righteous judgment and equity. Today we live under the sun in a world of suffering and injustice, but God will 
God will sort everything out and make all things new for his people. Well, like a faithful sermon, like a faithful preacher, he calls himself the preacher throughout the book. He gives us two points of application at the end. Fear God and keep his commandments. Man, there's, a, there's an impulse, not in the world, there's an impulse in the church not to talk about the fear of God. We want to keep everything light, keep everything positive, keep everything sort of happy, clappy, and I'm all for joy. We've talked about it the whole book. But I'm for a sober joy, a, a weighty joy, a joy based upon the truths of Scripture, not a flippant sort of, but we want to keep things light and positive and sort of avoid so much of this talk that's in the Scripture, talk of things like fearing God. The fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. The implication being, if you don't fear God, you're a fool and will live a life of foolishness. To fear God is to revere him in the highest way. It's to honor him. It's to live in awe of him. It is to treasure him. It is to, when people encounter God throughout the scriptures, get any glimpse of his being at all, they hit the ground in, in uh, sober, just being overwhelmed by his glory and greatness. Now, if you're a Christian, I do want to make this clear. You're not to live frightened of God like you will be subject to his damnation or you'll be subject to uh, his wrath. We don't live frightened that God's wrath is going to break out against us and judge us eternally or something like that. Uh, Rather, it's to be moved by who he is and what he's done so that we think of God in several ways with wonder. Not, not just sort of casually, but with wonder, with, with a weightiness. The word glory, for instance, has the, it, it, it's a word that means weighty. That God's glory, God, the person of God is weighty. There is nothing heavier in the sense of more substantial to us than God. It, it's, to, it's to relate to God with a sobriety, to, to, take, to be sober about the things of God. Now, they may produce joy in our lives, but we're to be sober about them. Look what Sidney Gridana says about this. He says, to fear God is to take God seriously, to acknowledge him in our lives as the highest good, to revere and honor and worship him. I love this, to center our lives on him. To fear God primarily means that I view God and I, I, I realize that God doesn't revolve around me and my desires. We revolve around God and his desires. We exist for him. He doesn't exist for us, catering to us. We exist for him. That's what it means to fear God. It's to have the right perspective that I am here for God. He's giving me breath today to bring him glory. That's why I'm here. That produces the fear of God in me because it's not all about me. It's about him. I revere him. That's what it means. That's the attitude. So he gives us an attitude in action. Here's my application, Ecclesiastes says. Live with this attitude, fear the Lord. Then he says, here's what you're to do. Keep his commandments. That's the final idea. Keep his commandments. Live according to his word. Now let's have a moment here because the reality is That's a discouraging statement. If the goal of life, if the purpose of life is to keep his commandments and we're honest, we realize I haven't done that. So I'm not very good at the goal of life. (laughs) If this is the purpose of life, 
I sort of stink at it. That's, that's the reality, that none of us have lived as we are to live, and that's why the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is such a powerful setup for the gospel. Because when you read on the story through the Old Testament, you come to the New Testament, you realize that Jesus comes in the flesh because we haven't feared God and we haven't kept his commandments. And Jesus comes and he completely lives in awe and wonder of his father and he obeys his father in everything. He never sins in word, thought, or deed. He loves God. He obeys God. And the beauty is his record of obedience becomes ours when we believe in him. So we are called to, uh, we are called to keep his commandments. I'm not minimizing that at all. That, that needs to be raised in our estimation. But the beauty is, I'm saying we haven't done that, but he has, and by grace, he credits us that when we believe in him. He also dies on the cross. The reason he dies is because, well, we didn't do verse 13. That's why he dies, because we were not God-fearers. We did not fear the Lord. We feared all kinds of things, but not the Lord. We didn't love the Lord our God with our heart, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We loved ourselves with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We came out of the womb saying, the universe revolves around me. Everybody exists for my pleasure and my good and my comfort. And because of that, Jesus came and suffered and died for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And now when we believe in him, when we turn from our sin and believe in him, we receive new life, our sins are forgiven, we receive eternal life, and we have confidence before the throne we have confidence before a throne of grace because now we've been declared righteous. Now we have been forgiven. And now we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can begin to obey God from our heart. So we're called to do this. We don't just, I'm not, I'm not saying this doesn't matter, Jesus took care of it. I am saying Jesus took care of it and, and empowered us so that we can begin to live this life before God. That is a beautiful truth, that the gospel comes and sets us free, makes us new people, changes our hearts so that we want to keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He puts a love for Jesus in our heart so that we want to please him with our lives. And he makes us fear him in, in an appropriate way. We see his holiness, realize we fall short, and we run, run to Christ and, and embrace him as our, as our Savior so this is what is coming for all of us. And when we realize this, this is where we started our study many weeks ago. When we realize this is the end, we can come back, sort of reverse engineer life. We can come back to the beginning and say, okay, this is why, this is what I'm supposed to live with this in mind, that my end is coming. In the first sermon of the series, I gave a quote from David Gibson, and we're going to close with it. This is what he says. Ecclesiastes teaches us based on this verse. Here's a quote from David Gibson. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey. If we know for sure where we're headed, heading, 
then we can know for sure what we need to do before we get there. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and our goals, our greatest ambitions and our strongest desires. I want to persuade you that only if you prepare to die can you really learn how to live. And that's what Ecclesiastes teaches us. You know, I want to ask you today, are you prepared to die? There may have been some of us that sat through this whole study, or parts of it, may not have been every week, but sat through this story, and we sort of had a cushion on around us so we didn't feel the, the poke and the prod. We sort of insulated ourselves from it. But I hope today, as we wrapped up, God spoke to you, and you hear, hey, this is a serious thing. Life is brief, and we are going to face him sooner than we know it. And there is rescue and forgiveness and hope and new life offered to you today if you will turn and believe in Jesus. It means repenting of your sins. It means leaving your old life behind and saying, I see where that life leads, and I want you, Lord. I want you. And you can do that by just believing. God turns your heart and you respond in believing in him. And you can do that today. You can turn to him. I, I urge you, the Bible says believe. It calls us, it, it implores us to believe. So trust in Christ today. I call you to do that. And then that will prepare you for the rest of your life and for eternity. And if you are prepared to die, that is in the, in the, you know, in the spiritual sense, you know Christ is your savior it says, he said that if you prepare to die, then you can really learn how to live. Have you learned and are you learning how to really live? To live in awe of God, to live in wonder of God, to let go of some of the things you're chasing and pursuing, trying to find meaning, turning from those which are just really idols, they're false gods, and saying, I'm turning to you, Lord, and trusting you today. So the book calls us all to repentance, I think, to repent and to believe to believe that God is glorious, to believe that he is good, to believe that he shepherds our lives by his word and by his care, to believe that his grace is towards us in every moment, and to believe there's nowhere else to go. The study and the chase of every other pursuit wearies the flesh, but the study and the knowledge of God is joy for eternity. The, as the band comes, we're going to receive communion today to to close today and to close this study. And we're going to think about the truth that all of the Word of God and all of life comes to us through the great shepherd. That he said, I am the shepherd, the great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life for us and he's shepherding and guiding us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.